Is God a bully? Yep, you heard me right. Is God a bully? Did Jesus have to come and die on the cross to rescue us from an angry God? Did Jesus have to come and rescue us before God wiped us all out? Some think so. Some say yes. But that's not what we find in the passage before us this morning. I want you to go with me to John chapter 3. I want to look together at John chapter 3 and beginning in verse 16 and reading through verse 21. I think you're going to find the answer to my question here in these verses this morning. John chapter 3 beginning in the well-known verse 16. Follow along as I read. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, some say God is an angry God. Some might think of the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards in 1741 that led to a great awakening in England. The title of that sermon, you know it? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now some say God is angry. God must be appeased. But our passage and all of Scripture says otherwise, and I would suggest that even though Jonathan Edwards... And if you read the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, it's available on the Internet. If you have an Internet connection, you will easily find it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you read his sermon, I think even though Jonathan Edwards used in his sermon some very vivid imagery to depict the just wrath of God on sin, I don't believe he was suggesting that God is mad. Though he used the title... Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I don't think he meant to communicate that God is mad at us or angry with us and he must be appeased. But there is a picture in the Word that points to the anger of God and it is toward sin. God is angry about our sin. He's not angry about us. He's not out to get us, so to speak. God's not mad at us and He's not out to get us to clean our clocks, so to speak. Pastor and author Ray Steadman helps when he says it this way. God does not wait with a stick behind His back. (laughs) Imagine that. 
Praise God that's not true, right? God does not wait with a stick behind His back when we want to come to Him. He's not angry at us. He's not waiting to talk to us first about all the awful things we've done and said in our lives. We're like that though, aren't we? You know, somebody says they, they want to uh, admit a fault and, and uh, apologize. We want to talk to them about their problem first and then accept their apology, right? We're naturally that way. God is not. He, Ray Stemmons says, His arms are open. He is ready to receive us. We can come just as we are. So I'm not here to tell you that God is an angry God who must be appeased. As Ray Stedman says, God doesn't come looking for us with a big stick. Does He? Absolutely not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Certainly not. It's, it's very clear from, from this much-loved verse, beginning here, verse 16 in our text this morning, that God loves the world. God loves the world. And you might say, How much does God love the world? Well, verse 16 tells us how much. So much so that we're reminded here that He sent His only Son. This emphasis in John 3.16 on this being the only Son of God is an emphasis on how much He loves us. Now, I just want to insert here as a side note. um, As we begin here in verses 16 to 21, some think that these are Jesus' words. And if you're reading through this passage, you may not even stop and think about it unless you have a copy of the Scriptures that has uh, red letters. And uh, yours might have this passage in red letters suggesting that this, these are Jesus' words. Um, many people, uh, and I tend to think this way, that these are not actually Jesus' words, but this is the Apostle John's commentary on what Jesus has been talking about here with Nicodemus before this passage. So your Bible might have these words in red, but, but many trustworthy scholars don't believe that these are necessarily God's words. It doesn't make them any less inspired. You remember that these are in God's word, and these are God's inspired word for us, but, but many believe that these are, these are John's words. This is his commentary on what Jesus has said, and kind of points back to and explains what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. The trouble is, when we look at the original manuscripts, there are no quotation marks. So you can't go back to original manuscripts and say, well, here, um, you know, John's quoting Jesus here, and he's commenting uh, his own commentary here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We don't have that, that benefit. But I say that because I think John's writing here pointing back to what Jesus has explained to Nicodemus about his need to be born again and how he could be born again. You need to be born again, Nicodemus, Jesus said. He made it very clear. And then later in the passage we looked at last week, right before this passage this morning, here's how. You need to look to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man is lifted up for your sake, right? The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. The Son of Man must be glorified. We talked about this Wednesday night in this, in, in meaning that what it means about the Son of Man being lifted up, it means that He must be preached, He must be glorified, He must be magnified so that people will know that Jesus is the answer to their sin problem. Now, what, what's the only way possible that Nicodemus or anyone else can be born again? We've seen it in our passage. We saw it in our passage last week as we came to this portion of our study in, in verses 9 through 15, what's the only way Nicodemus could be saved? What's the only way anyone could be saved? Is to look to Jesus Christ and to look to Him in faith, believing that Jesus Christ shed His blood for your sins. Then and only then will you be saved. That's the only way Nicodemus or anyone else can be born again. You can only be born again by looking to Jesus Christ 
the one and only Son of God. You must look to Jesus alone and Him only and believe in Him for salvation. And verse 16 makes that very clear here, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Look at verse 16 again. I know you know this verse. You've heard it. You, you have it memorized. But look at it closely. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Who? Whoever. Anyone. Whoever believes in Him will not perish. They will have eternal life. They will be forgiven their sins. It's the only way. Looking to Jesus is the only way. And we read the text this morning and we see clearly how God accepts us, don't we? He welcomes us with open arms. He doesn't come chewing us out for all of our sins, does He? you see anything in here that chews us out for being a sinner? I mean, you're without Christ, you're a sinner. You, you need to face that, right? Before you came to Christ, you were a sinner. You had to come to that understanding before you could believe in Jesus Christ and trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Because if you don't believe you're a sinner, you don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus Christ. But it is clear here that He stretches wide His arms and He says, in effect, as we see in Matthew 11:28, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are heavy, heavily burdened, heavy laden with sin and sin's darkness without Christ. And He doesn't come chewing us out, accusing us for being sinners. It's what we are without Him. For God so loved the world, it says. For God so loved the world. The love of God for mankind is very clearly seen here throughout this passage. I I answer my own question. God is not an angry God looking for people to punish. Now, I think there's something very helpful here for us. And I think that one of the implications of this passage is that when it comes to sharing the Gospel with unbelievers, we ought to follow God's example. We ought to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. Here's what I'm thinking. You ought not come to an unbeliever in the name of the Gospel with a judgmental attitude. Have you ever seen anybody witness like that? You come to come to come uh, in front of an unbeliever, and you might come with an accusatory attitude. How dare you sin against a holy and righteous God? Well, the fact is that's true. How dare we, right? But we don't see Jesus coming like that. We don't see that in God's word. We need to be careful, I think, about how we approach unbelievers. That we be very careful that we don't come with this legalistic, judgmental attitude that says, how dare you sin? Unbelievers can't help but sin. They can't help themselves. They have hard hearts. They have blind eyes. They do not see the light of life, Jesus Christ. They do not know the truth. They cannot obey. I think this is very instructive for us, very helpful we ought to follow Jesus' example here. You ought not come to an unbeliever in the name of the gospel with a judgmental and accusatory attitude. You ought to come to an unbeliever with a love of Christ, sharing the gospel of Christ. Yes, those people that you bring the gospel to may be living in the most awful circumstances. They may be living in an awful state of darkness and sin. But Jesus Christ receives them with open arms, and so should you. Right? 
If you need an example, let Jesus be your example. It's interesting that we never find him in the Gospels condemning those who are living in sin. I'm not suggesting that he says it's okay that they're living in sin, but he never comes condemning them for being sinners. And I think we do the Gospel no favors when we condemn sinners thinking that in some way that's going to set them straight. What happens when somebody comes and corrects you? What's the first thing you do? I'll tell you what the first thing I do is I defend myself, right? Because the natural inclination is to defend yourself. Wait a minute, I'm not, I couldn't possibly be wrong, right? Don't mis, don't misunderstand this. Sinners certainly need to realize that they are sinners. <laughs> they need to understand this before they can believe in Jesus Christ because if they don't understand they're sinners, they don't need the Savior, do they? They don't need to confess sin. Jesus is certainly concerned about sin. Would you agree with that? Jesus is concerned about sin. John 3.16 makes that clear, doesn't it? Jesus was certainly concerned about sin. He yielded up His life because there's sin that needs to have the just wrath of God meted out on it. And Jesus needed to give Himself up so that we might be forgiven our sins and and be saved from the just wrath of God. Jesus certainly cares about sin. He came to take the punishment for our sin. Sin is why He willingly came and offered Himself up. So we can praise God that He does care about sin. But we never see Jesus dealing with people, even those living in blatant sin, with condemnation. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, right? That's what Luke 19.10 says. Sin does not keep you from the Savior. Your sin makes it very clear to you, on the other hand, that you need a Savior. Well, that's the message we need to bring unbelievers. That's the message we need to bring to those who are who are in turmoil, in sin and darkness. Sin does not keep you from God. Sin makes it very clear that you need God. Just because you're a sinner doesn't mean God rejects you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die on a cross for you so that you can be forgiven your sins. Repent, look, believe, and be saved. Right? That's the message we need to take to unbelievers. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 makes this clear when it says that in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? The Lord sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die to pay the price for our sin so that our sin account could be stamped as, in effect, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Quoting Ray Stedman again, who illustrates this point very well, he says, relating the story, years ago, I read a moving story about a young man who had quarreled with his father and left home. He continued to keep in touch with his mother and wanted very badly to come home for Christmas, but he was afraid his father would not allow him. His mother wrote to him and urged him to come home, but he didn't feel he could come home until he knew his father had forgiven him. 
Finally, there was no time for any more letters. His mother wrote and said she would talk with the father, and if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white rag on the tree which grew right alongside the railroad tracks near their home, which he could see before the train reached the station. If there was no rag, it would be better if he went on. So the young man started home, and the train drew near his home. And as it did, he was so nervous, he said to his friend who was traveling with him, I can't bear to look. Sit in my place and look out the window. I'll tell you what tree, what the tree looks like, and you tell me whether there's a rag on it or not. So his friend changed places with him and, and looked out the window. After a bit, the friend said, oh yes, I see the tree. The son asked, is there a white rag tied to it? For a moment, the friend did not say anything. Then he turned and in a very gentle voice said, there is a white rag tied on every limb of that tree. That, says Ray Steadman, in a sense, is what God is saying in John 3, verses 16 and 17. God has removed the condemnation and made it possible to come freely and openly home to him. And Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, does that depict an angry God who's out to get you? Absolutely not. That's all good news, isn't it? All good news. And verse 18 starts this way. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. More good news. Amen? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. This is wonderful news. But there's a serious note that sounded next. In verse 18, here's the seriousness of sin. The word but. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because... He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Yes, sin is a deadly problem. Sin is a deadly problem. So deadly that the Bible makes it clear that without Christ, we're already condemned. The world is living under the just condemnation of God because of their sin. But it's not as if God is out to get us. Verse 18 makes that clear when it states that those who do not believe are condemned already. They've chosen their condemnation. And they are condemned already because that's what those who don't believe choose. It's a sad reality. It's a sad fact that some sinners reject God. Many sinners reject God. So what's the alternative? The alternative, the answer is to believe. It's very simple. It's to believe in Jesus Christ. Admit your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But so sadly, there are many who don't believe and many who won't believe. And I think sometimes as followers of Christ, that baffles our thinking. That may seem unbelievable if you're a Christ follower. Why would anyone want to remain condemned when Jesus Christ has already paid the price? Why remain in your sin? Why remain condemned? 
we have the answer. Verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, J.I. Packer in his well-known book, Knowing God, explains God's wrath in the Bible is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. When John writes, whoever does not believe, that is, in Jesus, stands condemned, judged already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He goes on to explain himself as follows. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And he means just what he says. The decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in in judicial action toward the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond it, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choice he has made. And in verse 19, John says, People loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's a plain fact here that mankind loves the darkness, and we're not talking about nighttime here. This isn't about pointing to the time of day. He's making a statement about the condition of the heart. The heart, apart from Christ, loves the darkness. That is, they love their sin. And I'll illustrate it this way. I think it's pretty easy to illustrate this way by the fact that none of us likes to admit it when we're wrong. Right? None of us likes to. Do you like to admit it when you're wrong? I don't think so. I don't, and I don't think you do either. Now, it's the same for sinners who need to admit that they're sinners, right? Sinners don't want to admit that they're sinners. People who are wrong don't want to admit that they've been wrong. People who are desperate in their sins often will say, I can't give this up. I don't want to give this up. If I had to, if I had to believe in Jesus, just think about all the things that I, that I would lose, they think, right? And what they need is to repent and believe in Christ, but that's not what we are naturally inclined to do, is it? People who are darkened in, in their hearts, who have hearts that are hardened and darkened and sin, sin stained, do not see the truth. Do not see the light of life, Jesus Christ. They need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, but that is not what they are naturally inclined to do. And this darkness in which the unregenerate heart resides is a universal problem. Do not think that this is just some people. This is everyone's problem. Carolyn and I were talking about someone she was talking to recently who spoke of a certain place and said they have a, they, they have a problem with theft there. 
And somebody else said, well, you know, that's weird. I was there years ago, and they had a problem with theft there too. And I said, that's funny because, you know, that really doesn't matter, the time difference, because there was sin there. There were sinning people there. There's a, there's a sin problem. It's not a, it's not a theft problem. It's a sin problem, right? And it's a common problem. It's a, it's a problem we all have before Christ. You see, in this darkness that the unregenerate heart resides in is a universal sin problem. And it's not just that some people prefer darkness and sin. It's that all people apart from Christ prefer darkness and sin. It's, it's our fallen nature. And in our fallen nature, we all prefer the darkness of sin. That's why God gives us a new nature. That's why we need to be born again. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God. You have to have a heart transformation. You need to be regenerated. You need to change. That's why God gives us that new nature and we're regenerated by the work of the Spirit. Because the heart without Christ is dark. It's sin-filled and it can't be any other way until it's made new by the Spirit. And that's what we see in verse 21. Look at it again with me. John 3.21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, just note that this is not suggesting that there is something different about some people that makes them good or better than others. When it says, but whoever does what is true comes to light. This is not saying that, hey, some people are good and some people are going to come and some people are bad and they're not going to come. This is making clear the fundamental difference between those who remain in darkness and those who have come to the light, come to the truth through faith in Jesus Christ. This is making clear the difference between believers and unbelievers. Those who have repented of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Only the soul is transformed by Jesus Christ. The true light which enlightens everyone we learned back in John 1.19. Only that soul is transformed by Jesus Christ. Only that soul longs to do what is true. You want to do what is Christ honoring and just in God's eyes, then you need to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ before you can. Only that person that's regenerated by the Spirit of God longs to show that his obedience is only by the work of God in him. It's not by any effort of my own that I do good works. It's because God is working in me. And only that heart and soul of life that's regenerated and reborn wants to point people to the, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who's regenerated them and made them new and enables them to do what's Christ-honoring. The message for us from this passage, I think, this morning is that without faith in Christ, and it's clear here, without faith in Christ, we stand condemned already. We face the just, righteous, and holy wrath of God on sin. But God's desire is not that we endure His punishment. 
His desire is not that He punish us. If it were, He would not have sent His Son. The message for us this morning is that God's desire is that we look to His Son. That we look to Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and that we look to Him high and lifted up. That we look to Him as the only way to forgiveness for our sin. And as we look to Him, we believe in Him and we live. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of this wonderful passage here beginning in John 3.16. Look to Jesus Christ and live. As followers of Christ, that's the message we need to take to the world. We don't come condemning them. Jesus doesn't come condemning them. We come with a message of life. Yes, they need to know about sin. Yes, they need to understand that their sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ if they will put their faith in Him and live. That's the message for us this morning. Be challenged. Be encouraged. And unbeliever this morning, repent. Turn to Jesus Christ and look to Him in saving faith and believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are blessed by your word, encouraged and challenged and equipped by your word. We're so fortunate to have the Bible that we can read and study for ourselves. But God, how how short-sighted we are when we come together and we even read it together and carry the Bible and yet we don't take it seriously as... As, this, as if you have a message for us to be shaped and equipped by and changed by, God, I pray that together your church this morning will be moved and transformed by the truths of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. That you sent your Son that he might be lifted up, that he might be exalted, that he might be made known So God, I pray for your people, your children, that we would make him known, that we would lift him up with our lives, that we would lift him up with our conduct and our speech, and that we would tell others about Jesus Christ, the only answer to their sin problem. And God, I pray for unbelievers this morning, that they would hear these truths and turn to you right now in repentance and belief and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, looking to him only in saving faith for forgiveness of sins. Oh God, we praise You and thank You for the wonderful message and wonderful truth of this text. It encourages us, it equips us, it equips us, it emboldens us that we might share the Gospel with unbelievers before it's too late. And that unbelievers might see this truth and be convicted of their sin and repent and believe. God help them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.